I'm your host, Mia Schachter. I use they-them pronouns and I'm a bit gender nebulous, a term that I made up and you can use if you like it. I'm an intimacy coordinator for TV and film, a boundary guide for individuals and couples, and a consent educator. My interest in this work is mostly in consent, gender, and power dynamics. I offer Zoom classes live and for download through my website and private consent lessons and boundary sessions too. Today I'm talking to M.I. Leggett, designer and creative director of the anti-waste, gender-free fashion brand, Official Rebrand, and we met doing trade markets on the Lower East Side of New York City like four years ago almost. Yeah. Okay, so the first thing that you said just a moment ago that I already want to talk about is that you didn't realize that you that boundaries were important until this last year, and I would love to hear what you mean by that. Yeah, I kind of always thought that if you needed to have boundaries with someone, then you weren't actually, you know, ride-or-die friends, and that in a strong relationship or a passionate relationship, there should be no boundaries and you should just be like completely sharing your lives. And I really love sharing a lot. Um, and I guess I like grew up with two sisters, an older and a younger. And so I guess it was really fun like doing things all together, even though we fought a lot. And maybe that was part of the reason why I felt this way. I don't know. But yeah, I just didn't really think that, hmm. um, that I didn't really think about boundaries. And I feel like people started to talk about them a lot more during the pandemic when all of our boundaries were being pushed and we were pushed into these really confined spaces with the same people for really long periods of time and needing to sort of build new schedules or new routines and such. So I think that was kind of what first had me starting to think about them, but I just didn't realize that they were part of a healthy, healthy relationships until more recently. So how has that then changed your life or your relationships? What have you noticed about that? Well, I've realized that you can't expect one person to be of everything. And that's kind of a violation of boundaries if you expect one person to be able to carry like all of the emotional weight that one person might need carried for them and like the importance of having balanced relationships and different like multiple like different relationships with different people to like satisfy different sort of or yeah meet different emotional needs. Yeah, I mean, I also broke up with my partner of like many, many years. And I think that boundaries were sort of a kind of constant thing at play that it like sort of contributed to the dissolution of that relationship as well. Wow. I'm sorry, that's really, that's really hard. It's, it's okay, though. It's, like, part of, part of life. And I think it would have yeah. been better if, like, we had stayed together with things continuing to not work out and having all these boundary questions, like, sort of kind of being constantly fraught. Because I think once you have taken all those, like, once you've taken all boundaries down, it's kind of hard to put them back up again. Right, it starts to feel like rejection or it starts to feel like some kind of, like, power shift. Yeah, or, like, we're growing, we're growing apart because we can't be this close anymore. We can't be this entwined yeah. anymore. Um and yeah, I think that's, it's a hard thing to navigate. Yeah, it's true. It's really hard to, like, move backwards that way. I mean, it seems possible, but very, very, very difficult. Um, there's something that you posted recently that I wanted to kind of use as a, um, a springboard here, which was that you posted some photos of, like, old, old designs that you had made, and you were like, thank God I don't design like this uh -huh. anymore. And, do you know what I'm talking about? <laughs> You're talking about. Yeah, and I, what I wanted to ask you about is like, like when you look back on like how you arrived at where you are now. When did all of the sort of, um, gosh, I don't want to like label these things as things that you maybe don't refer to them as, but like the the activist component of the work that you do or the political components of the work that you do. When did that start to pop up? Well, I guess I, my fashion trajectory wasn't completely linear or direct. I took a I, so I always designed clothes when I was little and would take sort of household objects and turn them into clothes and or like curtains or like my grandmother's old clothes I would like cut them up and make them into new clothes for my little sister and then in high school I got really into sustainable agriculture and small farms and I worked 
mm. every single summer on a like in this sort of group of farms that was also like a youth development organization. So I was also kind of a youth being developed in this organization that was like getting teenagers being <laughs> in agriculture and like learning about the food system and food justice. And so I became a food justice freak and like only paid attention to food justice for a while, which like intersects a lot with like racial justice, like economic justice and all these other things because like food touches everything. And so I thought I wanted to be a farmer and then I ended up getting kind of so depressed by that whole space because it is really like horrifying, like the state of the food system and like inequitable food the sort of discrepancies in access, climate impact of that, of food. Um, so then like a few years later, I was studying abroad in Berlin and started working for a fashion designer there. And they had me paint on clothes and I was like to create clothes for them. And I doing that, I was like, wow, this is something that I'm really, really passionate about doing. And I just, it felt so good to take a paintbrush to some clothes and that sort of act of taking something that sort of seemed finished and sacred and just completely putting your own mark over it. Just, I was pretty hooked after that. And I had also felt like I had never really found the, the right clothes to really like express myself. Um, and I was sort of coming into my non-binary identity and I wasn't out as non-binary yet, but this was something that I was kind of like feeling inside and trying to figure out and having clothes that were just completely unique to myself and had my own marks on them and weren't like the clothes that anyone else could have um, made me feel really affirmed. But because of this whole back like, experience that I had working in food justice and knowing so much about climate justice and climate change, that kind of pushed me to know that I couldn't really be doing fashion if it wasn't going to have a hard, sustainable edge. And I've also just always really liked utilizing things that are being are not being utilized in like waste. I've always like created things from waste and so it was just sort of like a natural intersection of those things and then I finally came out as non-binary and that just sort of it made sense to sort of wrap my own identity into the brand as you know clothing is like a layer of identity it's like the sort of your first layer of armor that you put out into the world it's a way to signify if you don't identify really with the body that you were assigned using clothes you can kind of completely construct your own image and so yeah, I started to make it, I turned it into kind of a brand. It was just my Instagram. I was just posting pictures of clothes I made for my friends and myself in college. And then as I transitioned out of college, I got some press reached out to me on Instagram and it kind of went from there. So I realized that this is actually something that people beyond just my immediate closest friends could be interested in and that there could be a wider market and people actually feeling um, empowered by the clothes besides just my friends and myself. So that was a kind of long-winded answer. <laughs> no, it's, you know, it's always amazing to hear how it's like, it, it's almost never a conscious choice, you know? It's like, it's just uh, where you are now is like, the very organic outgrowth of like various experiences and like like river channels that you were already flowing in that just kind of like came to a delta and now is like all one river. Mm -hmm. um, what I'm already kind of noticing here is you mentioned that you really like sharing um, when we were talking about boundaries and then this aspect of like this this brand sort of originating within your sort of technique community and something that does really come across in your social media presence is that your brand has a really strongly rooted community in like people that you work with um over and over with your friends um and even like i remember so vividly seeing you at the what market was it the street. essex street market i think it was essex street. Hester street fair yeah and i remember yeah noticing that like you seem to, to always have like a rolling crew of friends <laughs> coming by whether one was like the photographer or one was like the model or you know whatever and that really does come come through can you talk a little bit about that it seems like it's such an integral part of the brand yeah definitely i mean i think that friends and art are like two of the most important important things in life and yeah i guess if i've learned anything in the, in the past year i mean it's like that you know you always have to value your friends so highly and be a, being a good friend is so important and yeah, I don't think like starting the brand, having like making zero budget photo shoots all the time. I don't think I could have created a brand if there weren't friends who were excited in what I was doing and excited by the clothes and excited just like to, you know, be pl playing and like trying on these kind of like personas or like expressing themselves in different ways. And I think that I, that's something that I still try to 
foster with my photo shoots is like the sort of energy where people can experiment and try a new thing and sort of play around like I also feel like this is maybe something that I should work on with setting boundaries with myself but I'm working so much of the time that I might as well be friends with the people that I work with um as the brand has mm -hmm. grown I definitely see the reason like reasoning for needing to like also keep some boundaries and like having professional working relationships I'm, I'm honestly pretty casual um and maybe like too casual with people that I work with some of the time so that's something that I'm, I'm trying to to work on and especially too with like boundaries with friends it's it's kind of a kind of kind of a difficult question because I feel like you know if I, I want if they're putting wearing something cute like I want to repost it but then like is it okay for me to tag a product in that um and those are kind mm -hmm. of questions that I um, I guess I've looked at other brands to see how they handle it as well, but as as the business has become like more financially sustainable, I think that's that's something that I grapple with a lot on like how to handle it. And like I think that for the first several years of the brand, I I realize now looking back on like how I'm running things now versus how I was running before, I was just like working so so much and putting so much into it and still getting so little out of it financially and just like throwing myself over and over and over at my work without really like getting it to actually like a sustainable place and that also resulted in me you know depending on my friends a lot and that support like it wouldn't have happened if I didn't have friends who were like excited and ready to support me. Yeah and my, my partner too, I depended on her like so much for things and I think that you know that was probably contributed to the sort of boundary breakdown that I had alluded to previously. Yeah, that's I struggle with that myself. Like with running a business and being so like feeling like my work is so deeply personal. If I feel a connection or a resonance with someone so much so that I want to work with them, then I probably also want to be their friend. Yeah, definitely. And that's really complicated because yeah, and as you said, like relying on someone, you know, just it makes it really blurry what needs are and when things are offers versus requests like mm -hmm. you might give a friend a piece of clothing and think that it's totally you know a gift for them like it's just an you're just offering it to them but they might feel some sort of implicit pressure to like wear it and post about it or like tag you whenever they're wearing it or something like that and it gets this it makes things really gray yeah definitely and that's the thing is that I'm such a hype man like and I also love gifts and gifts are like my love language so I'm always giving people gifts and but I also anytime that I get a gift from someone I will always post about it and like always tag and like love to do that and love to just like share again because sharing your social media is like the easiest thing to do like it doesn't cost any money it's just like you're sharing and you're like sh like connecting community members and like people who are supporting each other so I'm sometimes kind of confused if I give someone something and they don't post anything about it because for me that's like the first thing that I want to do but again like not everyone has like completely commercialized their Instagram and like I have to kind of remember mm -hmm. that like not everyone is a hype man and like not everyone is trying to like yeah monetize their social media and that's, I think, a weird thing about having it be such a personal account, but, like, at the end of the day, it is a business account, and and not everyone wants to have a business account. Right. Not everyone wants to be an ad. Yeah, definitely. Too. And I think that the fact that I, like, addify myself so much, it's, it's, it's weird because, like, I do feel so passionate about, like, my work and, like, sharing other creators' work, and, like, I just, like, love hyping people up. And I think that in a past life or, like, in an alternate reality, I could have been a publicist because I love, yeah, just hyping people up. Mm spreading positive messages and, and such or um, yeah and so I think it's just yeah it's important to respect other people's boundaries and how they want to use that their like platforms and that not everyone is coming from the same uh, attitude their bodies too how they might want to use their bodies mm -hmm. like that's a that's a really interesting thing about fashion that I think is unique to fashion or may, you know maybe fashion and jewelry mm -hmm. where it's like you put it on and you sort of become whether you choose to or not you become an ad for the thing yeah and I mean I think that also some people are like this is my outfit now like I created this I styled myself like I am embodying it I am activating it this is me now this is not like some designer that I'm gonna tag on Instagram because like I am not their brand like I am making this my own and to a certain right. extent that's like what official rebrand is all about is just sort of like embodying yourself and figuring out how you feel most comfortable to present yourself and like having the space to experiment with your self-presentation to figure out what's best for you 
it's not I, I also like one reason why I do workshops with people where I teach them how to like use different kinds of paints and techniques for upcycling stuff is because I can't make a perfect piece of clothing for everyone and there's something so special about making something for yourself and making like really thinking about what would be the perfect thing for you to wear and then just making it I just that was one thing I was going to say about how people like name brands sometimes kind of confuse me when people are like Calvin Klein and it's like okay I'm just gonna wear like Calvin Klein like so big and it's like this is just some man's name like um. it's literally a, a human's name yeah exactly yeah that's that's a funny one I remember there was like a trend I feel like when I I'm a little bit older than you but like when I was in middle school and high school there was a major trend of like just wearing the thing with the name brand on it like DKNY, Jockey, um, Calvin Klein was a big one, Ralph Lauren, Abercrombie and Fitch you know it was like you just wanted the shirt with the, like the brand's name on it. <laughs> Logo mania and that's still going on today completely like look at Supreme and the Gucci mm -hmm. I mean even just like the Gucci Balenciaga sort of fashion and breeding situation that just happened where like all I have to go on right now is like oh my god Balenciaga like we're gonna just mash up our own logos and it's everyone's gonna go crazy like um and yeah I mean the whatever I don't need to go into like more fashion collab Logomania <laughs> things. Well something that I really appreciated about your like it wasn't just that you were upcycling stuff there was an element of like I'm gonna take this thing that you believe is worth $5,000 because it says Prada on it and I'm gonna just like slap some paint on it and make it my own and then decide that it's a new thing. Like there's a whole existential crisis in there that your art speaks to. Um, is that Was that uh, like very intentional? Yeah, I mean, I I don't paint on like $5,000 pieces really. I definitely, I will paint over like some knockoffs and I have painted on like some designer things. But yeah, I think that I, a big thing that I was focused on when I first started, um, and it's always still kind of in my mind, is like authenticity and how people really chase it and the sort of chasing of like, all we want is like authentic relationships, but then we also like, that pans out to also wanting like authentic brands and why knockoffs are like so pervasive because you can have this like look of having an authentic brand, but like not for actually the price. And I, I think that I love bad knockoffs um, because, well, I don't really know why I love that. I guess because, yeah, it kind of is, shows the sort of futility of trying to chase authenticity through a label because whether it's a bad one or a good one, you're still trying to buy authenticity. And like, I think that authenticity more like comes from the inside than comes from what brand uh, you want to wear, which is maybe a controversial thing to say as a designer. But um, yeah, like, we all just like want to be real and want like to have real relationships. And then you have these brands and uh, like brands that sort of have worked for years to build an image um, that people want to buy into but it's also like superficial to a certain extent. I was gonna say that like the the, the artists who sp speak the most of this phenomenon, I from my experience has just been hip hop artists like Young Thug and um, Kanye West and like Frank Ocean all have like really good songs about like authenticity and like comparing like brand authenticity to like friendships. And yeah, I think that those were like very inspiring artists to me at the beginning thinking about those concepts. I, I just was noticing that I sort of said very flippantly as though you slapped some paint on the things that you make and I, um wish I had not been so dismissive because it's very not true. It's very clearly very deliberate and um, very skilled. But I was sort of speaking to the like the like anti-name aspect, I guess, of of the work that you do. Yeah, well, I mean, the, the, I guess that kind of speaks to just the name of the brand is official rebrand. And I guess it was originally kind of a joke, um, but that is pretty much what I'm doing is like rebranding these things and like taking these like finished sort of like sanctified consumer objects and then just being like remixing it and saying it's something totally new and like completely gay. <laughs> Yeah, I'm, um, there's something that you're kind of talking around that I'm curious to hear your thoughts on, because I've, 
for in my work as a as a writer, like when I was writing plays, and then again as a ceramicist, like with every new medium, I have had to learn and relearn this lesson over and over again that trying to be universally accessible is like the death of art. Mm. Um, that like versatility is not the goal, um, and that specificity is actually what means more. People, people. love their it niche. Might not mean more, right? Right, and people love to go like people love it when they see something that resonates really hard with them as opposed to something that seems like it's, you know, accessible to the highest number of people possible. And the way that you've been talking about your work and like the time you spent in Berlin and being asked to paint on clothes, like, is that something that you've um, wrestled with at all? So the, the conflict that I constantly find is like the push and pull between universe, like being universally, being as accessible as possible, like as relatable as possible with specificity. And what I've noticed over and over again, the lesson that I learned over and over is that specific specificity is what impacts people and resonates most with other people. Um, but from the way that you've been describing your work and your sort of journey, it almost sounds like you don't worry about being the most accessible. Um, I don't know. Yeah, I mean, people question. used to ask Sorry. me, people used to ask me things all the time about like, who's your target audience? And I, would say like I don't really have one because like anyone can feel like empowered through their clothes and like weirdly like a lot of my original like a lot of my strong like biggest clients like at the beginning were like middle-aged women who were just like all about official rebrand for some reason <laughs> and yeah like there would just be people like so many different kinds of people who would like it so I didn't really want to be putting any into anyone into any boxes and I think that it being so like gender free both like opens it up and it also like closes it because it is like a very queer brand but it's also i'm not saying like this is clothing only for non-binary and trans people or gay people like it's also it's like it's something with stylists too what will come and they'll be like oh so is this like men's or women's or is it like for everyone and just saying like oh it's for everyone like that actually then opens it up and makes it actually less niche in a way though yeah i mean i, I think that i i'd like to think that i'm not just like yelling into an echo chamber but i think probably most of my customers are and people who are following me on social media are you know in the queer community or allies to the queer community and also people who are you know probably thinking a little bit about the environment um though they might not necessarily be like environmental activists yeah i don't know like i i guess i sometimes wonder too about like how vocal to be about my own like transition and like my gender journey through my social media and i if that you know alienates some people i think that the benefit though of it like helping some people like far outweighs the, the risk of alienating people and if people are going to be alienated about that then i don't really want them to be like repping the brand anyway My Patreon is now a community site for DIY self-paced learning. I share assignments, journal prompts, media examples of consent and boundaries, discount codes, my own writing on boundaries and consent, the medical industry, and other things that I'm thinking about all the time. I share papers, articles, lectures, and more, and you also get access to the Patreon-only Discord channel. Patreon is a great way to support the show, but there are other ways that don't cost money. You can rate, subscribe, and write a review wherever you listen and share the show with your friends. All of that is deeply appreciated. I'm currently taking private clients. You can find out more about that in the work with me tab on my website, sharetheloadinc.com and schedule a call to see if we're a good fit. That feeling that you just said at the end around, um, like if people, you know, if, if you sharing your authentic story and your authentic vision, like alienates people, then they can kind of fuck off anyway um is like the that's the confidence piece that I feel like I'm always like you know when I'm really aligned when I'm like really in flow and when I'm really feeling um 
like the messages that my body is giving me about like what feels true and real, then I feel like I have that confidence. Like I, I can feel it. I can sense it. I can embody it. And then there's those moments that sort of take me out of it that I think are fueled by like, well, but I have to make money, you know, or like looking at my bank account moments or moments where I'm like, Hmm, this post doesn't seem to be resonating with people. Um, and then I, I like, I, you know, I fall off the tracks a little bit. Their clothes and who is behind like whatever they're doing. So if some people are like, Oh, like, like with some like weird baby pictures that you're like weird pictures of you from childhood, like I don't have want anything to do with this. Like, okay, that's definitely fine. Yeah. Or like, like this isn't like a, a company with like, you know, a bunch of employees. This is just like one person like running this out of their living room, like unfollow. Um, yeah. Uh, like okay that's that's fine i think that then like by also sharing that stuff i'm gonna just have like a stronger relationship with the people who are uh interested in what i'm doing yeah it sounds like those are that's not your target audience you said like people have asked you who your target audience is and my immediate thought was like it sounds like it's really kind of your community your target audience is like your friends <laughs> and then anyone who sort of identifies with what it is that you all are trying to do yeah exactly and like i definitely am surprised at like the kind of people that it does resonate with and even just through like friends of like my parents who see my work i wouldn't really expect it to resonate with them but uh like a lot of them it seems to you know be something that they're not used to seeing and it's like kind of eye-opening for them and even though i guess yeah i'm not really like catering my output to them at all but it is like, like makes me happy to know that like people who are like who maybe like wouldn't have found it necessarily organically on their own um are are still finding it and feeling impacted by it or at least paying attention to it they might not even be impacted by it, but they are mm -hmm. paying attention and just the power of like them knowing that it exists because i'm thinking of my parents friends who are being impacted by the fact that my parents have a non-binary child and that they're kind of having to learn by proxy and witness my parents figure that out um like there something that's been coming up for me a lot and i've been like talking about with friends is that my, my mom was a magazine editor she wrote for ma um, women's magazines like glamour and 17 and she wrote she wrote this weekly column or, or i don't know whatever monthly column called the how to do anything better guide. And so there's been this sort of air in my household in my childhood that was like, if my mom tells me something specifically around like how to be a woman, that she was right because she knew how to do anything better. She literally wrote the guide. <sighs> yeah. And so there were things that my mom did when I was growing up, such as um, when I was 16, she offered to get me um, laser hair removal for my upper lip, thinking that she was like being a really good mom. And now when I've tried to like, and also on my legs and when I like haven't shaved my legs and been like, oh, I kind of, maybe I just don't want to shave my legs anymore. Or like, I don't want to deal, you know, I want to see what happens if I don't like bleach my upper lip. I have these like bald spots that are very awkward and strange that I don't like. And it's, you know, it's because my mom, like, I can't even, I feel weird now even like embracing. Yeah the hair, which I would like to be able to embrace because now I have this like splotchy mustache on my face <laughs> because my mom was trying to like, you know, make sure that her person who she thought was her daughter at the time, like would be the most appealing to the highest number of men possible, which of course is like scarcity mindset. It's incredibly cis heteronormative. It also like doesn't depend on you Sorry, to like, attract a man or a partner based on your own like internal merit as well. Nope, not at all. It also assumes that I'm straight. It's, it assumes that I'm cis, you know, it assumes all these things. And it also, it, the, the idea, and I'm like starting to notice that I think this has to do with the, 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 uh, like impetus that I feel to be as accessible to as many people as possible. Um, the idea behind like her motives were, I just want as many men as possible to find you attractive. Like she would never say that, you know, but like, that's kind of the idea. Yeah, I, I can relate. I had a very similar experience. I don't really want to go into it, but I had a very, very similar experience happen, and it made me definitely feel like 
like, oh, I guess like my looks are going to be the, the thing that I use to like secure like financial stability. Yep. Yep. That's a very real pressure. And so, um, like if you're going to be an artist, like you got to be, you're probably going to be pretty poor. So you're going to have to look your best. Yeah. Oh my God. When I was in college, my dad and I were on the subway once and I was considering declaring visual art as my major and he was like you know mom and I've talked about it and like obviously you're an adult and you can decide whatever you want but we really want to like strongly encourage you not to declare visual art as your major because we don't want you to rely financially on a man mm. <laughs> yeah please. and at, you know he was like and this isn't because you're like he I don't think that he I think he knew what it sounded like in part but he didn't really understand what it sounded like to someone of my generation's ears mm -hmm. Um, I didn't end up declaring visual art as my major for a number of reasons, but yeah, so many assumptions in there that I would rely on a man, that I would want to date a man, that I would need to rely on anybody, like that I wouldn't be, I don't know, that I wouldn't have job prospects. I mean, there just was like so much in there that was wrong. I think it's just like a lack of understanding too, because like how being a, like be, being a visual arts major doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to be a starving artist, like that there isn't like a whole like industry of art to be working in and like so many other, so many things that you can do with it that's a good point i did end up minoring in visual art and i'm very glad i did um plus they were like all for it as soon as it became commodifiable as as ceramics like as soon as i was doing like functional ceramics they were all about it no way yeah i wanted to, i was a visual arts major but it took me a while i, I went to school as like i applied as an environmental science major because i wanted to change the food system and then um yeah. that was too depressing like everyone who studied environmental science was always like so depressed and um yeah, and I was an art history major because I just didn't think I could do it. And then I took art class and was like, you know what? Like, I really like this and I think I can do it. Um, so it took a while to, like, trust myself to go for it. But then once I took an art class, I was like, I don't want to do anything else but this. Where where was that? At Overlove. Oh. Oh, that's right. I think I knew that you went there. Um, I'm curious about this because you have you've, you've been very public about your gender journey and how the brand has changed and stuff. And I wonder how you see, does your, has your work, I'm, this is such a leading question. It's just like, from what I've witnessed, it has almost seemed like there's like a mirror, like your work is a mirror for you and that you've been able to like sort of use that, like bouncing back and forth in like the in-between space of like wherever there's you and then there's your work. And like, I've just seen so much sort of of this like cyclical mirroring thing going on. I'm curious what your experience of that has been. I mean, I think there's also maybe a little bit of like a, this is the wrong analogy, but like a cat chasing its tail or like, I'm sort of like projecting and like my mm. work is also in a way that I can kind of like connect with my subconscious a lot of the time and I'll make a piece. And then after I'm done with the piece, I'll figure out what it's actually about. And this was, I think even like is even stronger in my like sculpture and drawing and like performance work. But I think still same with like the clothes and like the creative direction and the casting and like what I'm interested in. Um, and like who I want to be sort of like the face of the brand. Um, like I can, I can, I see a lot about where I'm going, even if I don't necessarily have the words or like the thoughts totally like succinct in my head yet. Um, like I knew that I was like non-binary, but I didn't really know exactly like in what way. And yet I was like, so like wanting to design for trans people and like make clothing that was affirming for trans people all the time. And I was always like very interested in like the idea of like tra transcending gender and transitioning and like just yeah like gender piracy and all different forms and like experimenting and trying things on and then it was only like in the past year that i was like oh i've been thinking about transness as like a cornerstone of my work for years like and i hadn't really like given myself this, the space to be like wait am i trans um and yeah i remember a friend had asked me like my friend josie um, who i collaborate with a lot like was asking me like well how do you identify like are you like a part of the trans community or like and i was just like yeah i guess i don't really know like i guess i would say i'm like trans adjacent or like yeah part of the community like i'm dating a trans person and like most of my 
friends are trans, I'm non-binary, so then I think within a couple of couple of months of quarantine, I think this happened to a lot of people, like, okay, you were, like, stuck with your thoughts for a long time, mm-hmm. like, you can't avoid these things that you've been trying to avoid thinking about for your whole life, like, oh my god, I'm trans, like, how did I not realize this? <laughs> it's hard, like, we're totally ingrained, like, even being a non-binary, it's like, well, whatever, I don't actually have to think about it, like, I'm just neither, so it's fine, and, like, I still feel that way, but it's, like, I still feel, like, actually, like, really much more interested in tapping into this, like, masculine side of myself that I've always kind of, like, focused on helping other people express their gender identity and like figure things out so that I didn't have to re- like reckon with the actual pain of like coming to terms with that and like coming to terms with like wanting to transition and wanting to be like really in a different body like that's it's really painful and like there's a lot of like sh- shame that I felt when I like first kind of came into it and like still sometimes and yeah I mean it makes sense that I wanted to like you know deflect those thoughts and like focus on other people on other people's gender expression for a long time so it's also been interesting because of COVID. I haven't really done any photo shoots this whole year and have just been kind of modeling things on myself. And I know like that's been really empowering for me to figure out like different ways to play and like present myself. But I know I'm also not like, there's no universal body, but like I said, I'm like, you know, a twink, like that doesn't really represent everyone. And I definitely need to now that it's like people are vaccinated more and stuff, like really do some more photo shoots with some more people because like I can't represent everyone at all. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, oh, but yeah, I guess does it's, that answer your question? Yeah. I don't know. I like went all over the place. Yeah, it totally does. And you know, my questions are as meandering as your answers. So <laughs> thank you for uh, finding the question in there. Um, I have this theory that whenever we like want something, like just having the desire generally means that we're actually closer to it than we might be aware of. Um, and that like noticing the desire, like actually becoming conscious of the desire means that we've actually wanted it for a long time and we've probably been unconsciously working toward it to the point where when we want when we actually name the desire we're like pretty close does that feel at all what you're just saying yeah absolutely um completely i feel like i was just sort of like yeah surrounding myself with like queer identity and queer culture and queer theory but wasn't really ready to like center like super acknowledge my own role and all of that like i just didn't have i wasn't ready to but then once i was ready i was yeah. like well i already have this like amazing infrastructure for like thinking about gender and like thinking about fashion as a way to like express my gender and experiment with it i just miss like going out and like i don't still don't really have reasons to get dressed all the time and so i'm looking forward to the days when i can get dressed to go outside every single day and have that opportunity to really just like create the image that i want to project in the world because yeah it's a, mm-hmm. it's it's an empowering practice and i remember i went to school i went to a uniform school when i was a, a little kid and so anytime we could wear like civvies and like not wear a uniform to school. I remembered I made like such a huge deal out of it. And like having that, the privilege to wear whatever I wanted was like such a exciting thing. And I think that's kind of shaped how I am, um, how I feel all the, all the time about getting dressed. I'm like usually always so excited. I am too. I really miss that aspect. And sometimes I just do it to like go to the farmer's market. I'm like, I'm just going to put these boots on and do my makeup under my mask. <laughs> just so that I know that that's what I look like. been very interested in this, like this mirror metaphor of like being in the, um, you know, like being in a bathroom where there's like a mirror in front of you and a mirror behind you and it just goes on forever. And I'm almost envisioning like you, you in that bathroom between like your brand, your work, your brand, and like your, I don't know what's behind, I don't know what the other mirror is, but it's like being able to like, cause they grow off of, it seems like they sort of grow off of each other. Like your self is in your work and then you see it reflected back to you and then you get to like adjust to that new reflection. And then cause you have this like very visual indicator of how you feel about about gender about waste about capitalism about money like all these things are sort of built into your brand and you get to watch yourself grow and change with how you with your relationship to those things yeah i guess i'm feeling also like yeah. a feedback loop as well and i think i'm just like so blessed right, 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 right. as much as like it's, it's a lot of like spreadsheets and seo optimization and like a lot of just like grunt business work but i also am just like so so blessed to be able to be able to like have a place to put my like creative energy that said it is also weird knowing that like 
I do shape my work knowing on what it's going to sell. And I think that's, I need to try to like delineate some boundaries for myself in like time. That's just like, you can pay whatever you want. It doesn't matter if it's going to sell or not. Um, yeah. And, um, I think that that's like something that probably I would be surprised if any artist hasn't grappled with this or like any artist who's like selling their work for money or like, yeah, like monetizing their like emotional and like physical labor as well. But yeah, doing what you should do, like, because it's like a finance, like the financially the best move or doing what you want to do because it's what your like subconscious is telling and like your emotions are telling you to do and what you need to like work through and stuff and I think what you need to work through is always going to be like more raw and valuable but the market is the market so something that you must constantly wrestle with yeah unfortunately something that has been coming up for me a lot lately is this idea including in my business that like and like I don't really have to chase the ball like the ball is rolling it's gonna happen all the all those all the blocks are in place you know like and and it's it's going to happen and and this feeling that's new that I'm noticing is not feeling like I have to chase the ball and in your story the ball is like uh what's gonna sell you know or like whatever's gonna sort of make you money or blow up or whatever and hearing you talking about when you're talking about boundaries it's like you're almost talking about setting up a container for yourself in which you can play and what I was talking about with, with my therapist was that it's almost like if I'm chasing this kid if I'm chasing anything I'm thinking I'm like imagining this visual of like being in a park and I'm chasing a kid and the kid is running away from me because I'm chasing them and as soon as I stop chasing them they can slow down and play they can explore and they can look at their surroundings and they can make friends and they can do all these other things and so what I'm hearing you say is that you want to like build yourself that park <laughs> like the structure of whatever that is so that you can play within it you don't have to actually chase anything for that at least for that period of time yeah yeah, I think that I'm like tr trying to trying to like access that space right now and accept that I actually have done all the the groundwork and I chased the ball for so long and I've put so many like I've just been working so much for the past like four years on this that like finally things are like really actually falling into place more and I you know I don't have to necessarily be working every minute of every day or in the times where I let myself not be working be worried about how I should be working and because I, I think that yeah it's like especially with being at home all the time like you're or, like working from home is also kind of like you're living at work. And that sort of breakdown of boundaries yeah. is um, was definitely really hard to deal with. And I also use work as a way to like sometimes just lose myself so that I don't I didn't have to focus on like other things in my life that were falling apart or other things in my life that were yeah that were really hard in the past year. And so I just threw myself into my work, and that was kind of like a coping mechanism in a way. But also kind of coming out of that need to be able to be like, okay, you know what? Like I sold a lot of stuff already this month. Like I can give myself some time to just paint whatever I want now and see what comes out. And like just focus on like I could, there are more things that I should like more products that I should be uploading onto my shop so that I can like sell more and more but like you know what like it's actually okay for me to just take my time and like do that next week and like give myself a little bit of a breather right now um and also do things like it's hard to give yourself that permission yeah but it's also like giving myself space just to read a book like it takes me so long to read a book and yet when I do read oh my books, God. I get so many like new ideas and my worldview is expanded and I learn new words and like so they're just I get to rest and you know not be looking at a screen or not be like holding my paintbrush um or something like that but it's still not something that I've like built that sort of like me time is not something that I've like built into my work day enough and yet it's definitely going to be only beneficial to my work to like have new ideas bouncing around my head that like some people have spent you know years putting together and synthesizing onto a page for me to read for me and for everyone else to read as well and I think that's a scary thing about being so just like in the social media ecosystem is that I'm so used to just like can I take this in in like 160 <laughs> characters and like only like 10 slides at most um and like not all ideas can be encapsulated into an infographic um that particular conflict I think is really significant I've also been working on like figuring out how to schedule playtime for myself and to consider that part of my work to be able to give that to myself and be like yeah this is part of your work day and also to consider like healing and rest as like also part of the work and not the thing that you just do like before or after work hours it's really hard
I think circling back to something that I said earlier of just like not everything can be um fit into an infographic I actually like recently did a project where I was trying to just like make infographics I wanted to synthesize mm -hmm. like all of these st statistics about water usage for different clothes and like how much water it takes to make a certain like a certain piece of clothing just to give people like really powerful like very instagrammable like memorable statistics because we have like so many statistics all the time it's so hard to like parcel them out and like really contextualize them I mean with COVID like we're hearing these like absolutely tragic numbers every single day and yet we become kind of like disillusioned to them. Anyway, so I wanted to make these real, like these these infographics. And then while I was doing it, I found like all the data was like completely conflicting and all measured in different ways. And I actually like I was chasing different statistics and then they ended up like at dead ends all the time. And like I actually just couldn't find like, you know, universally, this is how much water it takes to make a pair of jeans. Um, and so instead of making these statistics, it was like for a zine that I'm working on for Earth Day, um, which probably by the time this podcast comes out, it will be live. Um, so I'll give you the info for that. Um, but yeah, I ended up okay. writing about how like there is actually no one size fits all solution to sustainability and solution to like what, like how much is okay to buy and how, yeah, okay. it can't like everything can't be reduced to infographics or like Instagrammable pages and things that are going to like go viral on social media or like that are designed for being shared and like looked at for two seconds. And yeah, so definitely trying to make more space for myself to like follow these ideas and, um, really like research things in like a more serious way than like the researching that happens when I'm just scrolling and then like look at something for a little bit. Yeah, it's really interesting that you, the information that you ended up with was like meta information about the micro information that you were finding and like its own limitations and shortcomings. <laughs> yeah, I, exactly. And yeah, I just like how the sort of intention that I had at all was just kind of like fruitless when like a sustainability, there's just like no one size fits all solution. And it's, yeah, just like that that data is also like evasive because like the fashion industry also doesn't really want to pay for studies or like a, a universal system to measure how unsustainable it is. Right. Yeah, that would be a huge reckoning for them. But the, the zine that it's for, it's, it's with this other brand that I collaborate with a lot called Etcha, and um, it's coming out on Earth Day and it has a lot of amazing contributors. It's called the Anti-Green Sheen zine. That's so exciting. It's the second, the second edition. We did it last the year. The Anti-Green... Sheen. Can you say that again? The anti-green anti sheen zine, and it's um, an anti-greenwashing, <laughs> um, and like sort of a empowering cool. guide to living sustainably in different ways. Cool. And is just for anyone who doesn't, my understanding of the word greenwashing is that it's sort of about like the commodification of environmental sustainability for selling products. Is that how you would describe it, or how would you describe it? I think it's also it? like the commodification of sustainability, but I think it's also about sort of like it's a bit of a smoke and mirrors type of thing because like. You know, you can just look at a kind of, like any sort of packaging and just be like, okay, they branded this to be like it's brown, <laughs> or like it, it like it says it's made from like thirty five percent plant materials, or like it's you know says all natural on it, which like doesn't actually mean anything, um, or it has like some certification that you can just pay to get that doesn't actually mean anything either. But it's like this brand that says that it's a sustainable seafood or what have you, mm -hmm. um, like USDA, uh, US ODA. You can just buy like the farms that I worked on were not certified organic because we couldn't afford to be certified as organic, mm -hmm. but you know like. Most of the organic food that is just certified by the US ODA is not is like factory farm, like not actually organic, but they can just pay to have it certified. So that's why you should also look for like multiple organic certifications when you are buying organic in general or just buying from like a local farmer. Right. It's always the best, but not always available. Like I don't live near a farmer's market, unfortunately. Um, yeah. But yeah, so greenwashing, it's like, yeah, like I said, smoke and mirrors. It's about like also people using bad data. And like I was using some of this data in my own work. Like I, there was this figure that was like all over the internet that was like, it takes 1800 gallons of water to make a pair of jeans. And I made an entire project of jeans, like based on this statistic. And then I went back to try to find that statistic to make a really Instagrammable infographic about it. And everywhere just linked a different article, linked a different article, linked dead links, like linked things that did not exist anymore. And I could not find it. And I was realized that I had, you know, pretty much also just been 
um, participating in greenwashing because I couldn't actually validate this source. And it was like a convenient statistic for me and a, like a powerful statistic, but I, you know, I'm not actually sure like how that data was, was taken now. And so I, you know, that, that's greenwashing too, is relying on bad data. And I mean, I think that people went, people were saying for years that fashion is like the second most polluting industry in the world. And there wasn't actually really proof for that. But I said that, like so many people said it. And then, um, then, you know, people were like, yeah, but like the oil industry, like the aviation industry, like they're out, I don't know if there's, I mean, also like, how do you, what, yeah, I don't know. Um, so that, that's greenwashing. Yeah. Well, how do you quantify that? And like, yeah, just how do you quantify like most polluting and like, is that per person or is it because of the size of the fashion industry? Whereas there might be more polluting, like more polluting industries per person, but they're smaller industries. Like the, those, those overarching huge statements like that just always beg the question for me, like, what are the statistics? What are you considering? I mean, I'm, this is like a whole philosophical thing, but I, I largely like don't believe in statistics because they're always conducted. Like they're always gotten by people with agendas and, uh, you know, goals and ulterior motives. Yeah. So to continue on this like statistical rabbit hole, like for this piece that I wrote, I <laughs> like couldn't find the right statistics for fashion. So I decided to like, there probably are more like hard scientific figures about plastic bags because governments have to base their policies on um, what they should do in the grocery store. And like, we're having a plastic ban, bag ban in New York that has like not actually taken, like it was put into effect, but like it was not actually put into effect. And you know, in Europe, like you have to always pay extra for your plastic bags, but also like you can get paper bags too. And that is like seen as like more sustainable, but paper bags actually like take more energy to make um, and are like less sustainable to make, but then their end of life cycle is like more sustainable. So you're basing this off of like carbon footprint and then like end of life. And those are like two different things. And then Another thing was like, how many times do you have to use a reusable cotton tote bag to balance out the environmental impact of a plastic bag? And one report said you have to use it 5,000 times. And another report said you have to use it like 170 times. And so like, they're all judging on different criteria and you can read what those criteria are, but it's very hard to make a comparison. Um, and you know, I like did a really deep dive on this, but like your average consumer is not gonna go and read like did all these different European reports to decide how many times they should use their tote bag before they can buy a new one. Like, I'm even thinking, I'm already flagging like what, what's considered a time? Like, is one time the time that I went to the grocery store? Or is it like, you know, I have a tote bag in my car that has stuff in it that I need to have in a bag in my car. Is that one time? Like, how are you, how are people even deciding what, what one usage is, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And like the average, allegedly, like the average life, lifespan of a plastic bag is like 15 minutes. But like, yeah, what is the average? And then what is the average American family? People are always saying that. Who, who is she? Like, I don't yes. know. Like, who's average? Like, yeah. Who are these people? I'm also, you know. Plastic bags can get repurposed. Like I use plastic bags to um, take out my cat litter. And um, if I don't reuse the plastic bags, then I buy compostable bags and then I'm paying for like new bags. You know, it's anyway, I'm, I'm with you on that. I don't think there's there's the statistics don't mean anything in and of themselves. And we don't get the information that comes along with the statistics or how people arrived there and what they're counting. Yeah. And I think that's the thing is like, there is just like no one size fits all solution because yeah, like you have a need for single use plastic bags and like, I have a small trash can. And so like, I do need to get like, t like if I get a, tr a plastic bag from the bodega, then I use that as my trash can liner. And then I like, that's, that's like, a, I was going to need something to do that anyway. Like now I'm not buying pla like right. liners for my trash bag, for my trash can. So yeah, I guess it's just all about figuring out like what, what works for you. Another thing too that I do is that I sometimes if I'm going out and know I'm probably going to be going to a bodega or something like that is I'll just put like a plastic bag in my other bag that I'm using because, or like in my pocket or something, because carrying a little plastic bag around, like a single use plastic bag is so much lighter and like carrying around a tote bag, like just in case you like 
buy some groceries <laughs> like unexpectedly i think that carrying around a tote mm-hmm. bag is like a lot clunkier but you can put a, a plastic bag can be so tiny so i think that that's also kind of a handy yeah, thing um okay well i am aware of the time and i want to ask you my question at the end of all my episodes which is if you can share three things that have that you feel have led you to the way that you think today so whether that's books a class that you took, a conversation that you had, a person that you know, whatever it is. I think the first thing that I would say was definitely the book that I just finished um, is Testo Junkie. Um, I can show it to you. <gasps> oh my god, I read Testo Junkie. Yes, like living in Bushwick at this coffee shop. Oh my god, Testo Junkie, holy shit. Yeah, I mean, okay. I, I can be like, yeah, the book that I finished like yesterday. But um, I definitely it was really, really helpful for me to be reading someone's like very in-depth experience about taking tea. Um, especially someone whose like identity wasn't like necessarily figured out completely at the time of like some of the reflections in the book, and so that was really helpful. Yeah, it's, it's almost written. It's almost written as though they're like doing an experiment. Yeah. And yeah, they're like experimenting with what will happen, but then sort of like find their gender identity in the process. Yeah, which really like resonated with me as someone who like experiments with clothing and uses like definitely thinks that like gender is something that you have to play with and like experiment with before you can actually find what is right for you. And also just thinking about the sort of history of like the medical industrial complex I guess and the sort of like how I was you know pretty much estrogen was like forced on me from the age of like 14 and how like women's liberation was so tied to like being on the pill when like women's liberation could have also been tied to so many other things and it doesn't necessarily have didn't necessarily have to be tied to taking more estrogen like womanizing or like feminizing yourself even more so take like take starting to take testosterone while reading Testo Junkie I think is definitely like formed how I'm feeling like right now <laughs> at least a lot yeah Let's see. Uh, definitely a recent change. Uh, not a recent change, but thinking more about play. Like there was a conversation that I had with Ariana Gill, who's the creative director of Brujas, and I was at her art show, which had um, I, like I was kind of coming for a meeting, but it was like at the gallery that she was like exhibiting in, and. Um, at one point, I mean, it was like an open, it was like a free play space. And so people were like, it was in a gallery, but there was like skateboarding and there were like soccer balls all over the place. And like kids could just come and like play or like, like youth, like teenagers were just coming to play and like goof around and stuff. And I was like, wow, this is like a really sick art show. And then sort of like in between our meeting, she was like, let's play dodgeball. And like got the whole group of kids who were there, um, like just the whole team, like crew, um, to play dodgeball. And I was like in the middle of a business meeting, just like playing dodgeball and, that felt amazing. Yeah. Like, this is so great. Like, I haven't, like, played like this in so long. And Ari was like, yeah, play is politically urgent. And I was just like, oh, my God. Like, I hadn't really thought about how important it is to play. And I've just been so, like, tightly wound up for so long um, with, like, just a lot of things in my personal life that were, like, really – and, like, a lot of business relationships that were falling apart and, like, my relationship, my, like, long-term relationship ending. And I was just like, I hadn't really given myself any opportunity to just, like, play and be, like, kind of loose. So, yeah, it felt um, – that was just a kind of, like – breaking open moment um and then I would also say um another like breaking open moment was when I was designing in Berlin like I was working for another designer in Berlin Fabio and Silva and um they had me paint on some clothes for a pop-up shop that we did in a toilet stall and um (laughs) I painted I was painting like penises on a t-shirt for them (laughs) and like over and over and over this like penis design and just like doing that felt (laughs) so good and um putting my my paintbrush to this finished t-shirt just kind of like broke something open in me and I was just like wow like I can just like paint on a shirt um like I don't like it, it's <laughs> not finished like I have not finished with it I can I can like change this thing infinitely um and like these objects can actually be fluid and I can morph them into whatever feels right for me like um that was really like life-changing honestly 
Well, thank you so much for doing this with me. This was great. It was really nice to catch up and hear more about um, what I only get to witness from the outside. Yeah, no, this was such a pleasure. I'm like, I want to start a podcast. You can find me on Instagram and Twitter at Consent Wizard. The show is produced and edited by Stella Hartman. Beginning and ending music is by me. There's sometimes other music by my friend Tyler Field. The podcast logo is by Candice Ploy Goodman. For contact information for these exceptionally talented people or to ask a question about boundaries and consent that I'll answer on the show, you can email podcast at sharetheloadinc.com.